obviously those those short sharp climbs suit me suit me it's my really do like that terrain so that's good hey podcast listener you're listening to the semi-pro cycling podcast the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about whether you're out training commuting or just riding around sit down and listen in because we're about to begin Yo, welcome to episode 136 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a Semi-Pro Cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's into sharp, short climbs. Hey there, Semi-Pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash supplements. So let's move straight into a performance probe this week and the effect of heat and heat acclimatization on cycling time trial performance and pacing is the name of the study. Hat tip to Dana for sending this one through. This study aimed to determine the effects of heat acclimatization on performance and pacing during outdoor cycling time trials. The time trial distance was 43.4 kilometers. The methods, nine cyclists performed three time trials in hot ambient conditions of approximately 37 degrees Celsius. On the first, sixth, and 14th days of training in the heat, data were compared with the average of two time trials in cool conditions. The cool conditions were approximately 8 degrees Celsius performed before and after heat acclimatization. So what were the results? The first time trial in the heat on day one and then the second on the sixth day were both slower than the cold time trial and the third time trial that was done in the heat. And there was no difference between the cool time trial and the third time trial, which was done on the 14th day in the heat. So that's already painting a pretty clear picture here. But the cyclists initiated the first 20% of all time trials at a similar power output, irrespective of climate and acclimatization status. However, during the first time trial in the heat, they subsequently had a marked decrease in power output, which was partly attenuated after six days of acclimatization and was reduced further after 14 days. Heart rate was higher during the first 20% of the first time trial that was done in the heat, but there was no difference between conditions from 30% onwards. So the conclusions that the researchers came to was that after two weeks of acclimatization, trained cyclists are capable of completing a prolonged time trial in a similar time in the heat compared with cool conditions, whereas in the unacclimatized state, they experienced a marked decrease in power output during during the hot time trial. It's interesting that 14 days is given because that can become a clear protocol because on day one, definitely having that reduction at the start of the time trial is going to, of course, result in a slower time across the duration of the entire time trial. So that's where on day six was a little better. And day 14 was heaps better. Then the other interesting thing is that you can then go back to a cool condition and complete a time trial with no difference. So this is definitely going to help you understand your adaptions that you need to do going into hot events. This is important for the Northern Hemisphere going into summer. Make sure that you are 
acclimatizing beforehand if possible. So if you're training in the morning, maybe you need to train in the afternoon if that's when your event's going to be. But don't be afraid to train in the heat if you're going to go to a cool climate or your event turns out to be a cool climate event because it's a really shitty day. Probe number two, N1NO, Hunt for Glory. It's Nino Scherter, the mountain biker. If you don't know him, he has released a video on some of his training and it includes things like cross-country skiing and a unique strength training program that includes coordination work and force work. But instead of me explaining it, I'll turn it over to Nino. But mountain bike changed a lot in the past years. Races got shorter, more technical, and it requires much more power and coordination. That's why I'm training this kind of exercise in the gym. You can't see it in the video here, but he's doing things like juggling, moving objects around on the floor while he's in a push-up position and his legs are suspended. I'm doing quite different than other athletes. What's maybe a big difference is my force training. I do a lot of force, like a, a circuit that is a lot of coordination training. Box jumps onto a Swiss ball. Then I'm doing a lot as well, uh, max force uh, weightlifting with uh, squats. What gives me the final power for sprinting and to get up steep uphills. Rolling out on one of those ab wheelie thingies, but his legs are actually elevated. And heaps of other interesting things. He also goes into some recovery things, including acupuncture, and he's doing some cupping, I think is the technical term. But there's lots of interesting exercises and things that he's doing, and it's a good insight. And I don't know if this is typical of riders in the Mountain Bike World Series or not. I'm all for new things and experimentation, especially in the off-season. And it seems like he is super open to it, and it's working for him. Ben Hill is an Australian cyclist on the Charter Masson cycling team. He's had a great start to the 2015 NRS season, but before this season, his cycling career took a detour, a self-inflicted detour. Back in October 2012, Hill was racing the final tour of the NRS season, the Tour of Tasmania, racing for the Suzuki Trek team on stage five, the final stage. Before the race, he was on the hunt for something to give him a boost. He asked around to see if anyone had any caffeine, some nodos, which are the 100 milligram caffeine tablets, Hill then says that a teammate, Tim Cameron, said that he had some caffeine powder. It wasn't exactly what he was looking for, but you can trust a teammate, right? So Hill goes on to come third on this stage, which happens to be his unlucky number as the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority drug tests the top three. Anyway, he gets tested. Turns out it was a bit more than just caffeine powder, and he tests positive for a substance called methylhexamine. Hill's version of what happened in the Cycling Central article, Hill on the Ride After a Suspension Setback by Sarah Van Bohemen, highlights the dangers of taking supplements. But there's a bigger question here. The methhexamine that Hill got done for was from a supplement called Jacked with the 
E replaced with a three. It's a bit of a jackass move, if you ask me. Ian Moynihan wrote an article on theraw.com.au that took a closer look at Jacked. I've pulled some of the parts out to put Jacked into context. Jacked, along with a number of other popular pre-workout products, was in fact banned on August 2 in 2012 by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. The Tour of Tasmania in 2012 was run from October 2 to 7, so Hill's teammate was carrying around basically an illegal drug two months after it was announced as such. Hill actually believes that Cameron knew it was illegal, and by the way, Asada sanctioned Timothy Cameron for two years for the use, admin, and trafficking of methylhexamine from the 2nd of December 2013 to the 2nd of December 2015. So he is still under sanction. The biggest lesson that we can take away from this case is be responsible for what goes in your mouth. Here's Jenny Screen from Netball Australia saying it much better than I can. At the end of the day, you are responsible for what you put in your mouth. So um, there's no pointing the finger, no innuendo of someone else or blaming anyone. You know what you put in your mouth. So if there's any second guessing or thought process that maybe it's a bit wrong at that point in time, don't do it. Don't, don't you know, get scared when you're taking that pee test because you know you may have done something wrong accidentally. This week, I'm going to talk about supplements. Well, not strictly supplements. This is the first confusing hurdle that I want to get over. When you're thinking about whether athletes need supplements, you've got to think about what you think a supplement is. And we include sports foods like drinks and bars and protein drinks that might be very useful in terms of just meeting nutritional needs and sometimes more practical than everyday foods. So certainly not every athlete needs to take supplements to get their best performance, but there are sometimes reasons why it might be practical to use specialised sports foods. And then there are a very small list of supplements that can enhance sports performance. And whether or not that's important to you would depend on what kind of athlete you are and what are all the things that you've got left to look at to try and improve your performance. That's Professor Louise Burke, who is, amongst other things, the manager of the Australian Institute of Sports nutrition team. She's discussing the definition of a supplement. And we are talking today about the small list of supplements that can enhance performance, not the nutritional aids. These can also be called ergogenetic aids, but we're going to stick with supplements for now. You may ask, why even risk getting banned by taking these substances? Well, for me, Hill's case occurred because of claimed ignorance, but this is an example of a poor, uninformed choice made by a rider. Say Hill got the caffeine he was looking for, though, that would have helped him in his commerce. Because caffeine has been found to be useful for certain intense situations. It's going to give you a neurological lift that can be for hard efforts, such as time trials or kermesses, when a rider would take caffeine during their warm-up. Studies have actually shown effects like this, anaerobic running capacity, where it appears to benefit anaerobic cardiovascular exercise, perhaps due to combination anti-fatigue effects and increasing power output. Power output, there appears to be a reliable and significant increase in power output, both weightlifting as well as cycle ergometer measurements in both trained and sedentary persons. 
and aerobic exercise. An increase in aerobic exercise capacity is noted with caffeine, possibly secondary to increased free fatty acids and adrenaline. So there is a case for these types of supplements in sport. I certainly wouldn't rule them out completely. How about you though? What are your thoughts on these types of supplements? Do you believe there are supplements out there that can help you get to the next level? It seems that it is fairly entrenched into cycling performance culture. An article called Doing Supplements to Improve Performance in Club Cycling, a life course analysis by B. Stewart and B. Outram and A.C.T. Smith explored the benefits that serious club cyclists have about performance improvement and what they think are appropriate and inappropriate ways of achieving it. So 11 cyclists from suburban clubs in Melbourne, Australia were invited to discuss their approach to training, racing and supplementation. The authors found that each of the 11 cyclists were not only committed to the sport, but also paid a keen interest in bike technology and training regimes. In addition, they believed that supplement use was integral to meeting the physical and mental demands of the sport, even at club level. They also understood that supplement use, like training regimes, followed a sequential pathway where the acclimation of capacity, no-no, and knowledge allowed progression to next-level performance. And like similar studies of club cycling in Europe, this cohort of cyclists balked at using banned substances, but also believed in order to effectively transition to the elite, that is, professional level, some additional supplement and drug use was essential. Wow. I really have to admit here that I've never really gone for supplements of any kind. It's always seemed so superfluous to the body's needs. Plus, I was always turned off by stories from the old days when riders had a tackle box full of gear. Because performance really does boil down to talent, smart, consistent training, and sound nutrition. However, there are a few products that can potentially help at different phases of your training and racing cycle. Before you even start to consider supplements, though, it is essential that you get your day-to-day basic nutrition right and this starts with a healthy and balanced diet. I do believe that you would have heard this before but once you have that down then the use of sports nutrition is the next building block of cycling performance. This is on big training rides or event days ensuring that you're taking the right fuel at the right time. Then there's the extra supplements but how do you choose the supplements that you want to use? How have I chosen the supplements to put into this podcast? So here's Professor Louise Burke again on the process that athletes at the Australian Institute of Sport go through when they're looking at possible supplements to take. When we talk to athletes about making decisions about supplements, we ask three questions. Is it safe? Is it effective? And is it legal? So the safety aspect is really important because people just assume if you buy something in a bottle and it's available on the market, well, then it it's, must be safe. And in fact, because the supplement industry is, is so poorly regulated in comparison to some other industries, it is quite possible to buy things on the market, particularly when you're buying on the internet and getting things from overseas, and find a product that isn't safe. And there have been some terrible stories recently about people dying or having serious problems with their health as a result of using supplements. Um, then the next question is, is it, is it effective? And then you need probably to get some really good advice on not only is the product got some science behind it, but is it right for your event and is do you have the knowledge of how you might use it to get those benefits? 
And then the last thing is, is it legal? So does this product contain any of the substances that are on the, the wider banned list? Now, there's two problems there because sometimes the supplements that are manufactured don't have all their ingredients labelled. And so the first problem is that people can read a label and not understand the ingredients and match them up to the wider banned list. But the, the worst problem is when the product is contaminated or contains ingredients that aren't listed on the, the label and so then the athlete can be taking a supplement assuming, well, it's just a supplement, it must be safe. It says it's really good and that athletes use it, so I must be able to do it too. And then they find they've, they've got an, an anti-doping rule violation because they've tested and they've found to have um, banned substances in their urine. To help you sort through the murky waters of powders and pills, it really helps to understand the life cycle of a supplement. There's a great article on Cycling Tips by Alan McCubbin on the life cycle of a supplement, which helps us know what stage a supplement is in. And by stages, I mean the process that it goes through from the idea through to the marketing product and also the studies that follow this along. I think it does a better job for our purposes because we can categorize supplements into upcoming and established, but Alan came up with four categories. Category one is animal-based studies only. That's pretty self-explanatory. It's only when the supplement or the ingredient in the supplement has been used on animals only. Number two, first tested in humans, but no performance test done. So this is basic preliminary test to see if it is safe on humans. Category three, recreational athletes performing a basic physical task. Usually these are university students because they're easy to get a hold of, they're cheap, and they have tons of time. So they're doing tests to see how this active ingredient works. And the fourth category is real-world benefits for elite athletes. Alan says this is where real athletes, often high-level club athletes or occasionally elite athletes, are properly tested using a methodology that actually resembles the real world of competition. In cycling, this usually means a time trial effort, often followed by a two-hour steady-state, constant, moderate intensity to simulate the pattern of effort in a road race. It is here that we finally know the answer to the question, does this supplement work for a particular type of athlete in a particular sporting situation. So now let's get to the part you've all been waiting for, the SUPS. And the first one I want to talk about is sodium bicarbonate. Well, actually, I don't want to talk about it. Professor Burke does a much better job of explaining its benefits than me. Is there a benefit to use a sodium bicarbonate as a training ad? Training, it could be useful to try and support the training session to allow the athlete to train harder, but also to reduce some of the negative side effects of having a high acidity in the muscle. So you may get less damage to the muscle, and both either through training harder and to having less damage in the muscle, leading to a better training outcome in the long term. A lot of athletes are using now the beta-alanine, so it's um, a supplement which can improve the muscle's internal buffering capacity, and when you take it, it it's a chronically applied um, outcome, so that if you're taking it, it's going to work for every training session. 
uh, and possibly then in competition you could add the bicarbonate as a buffer in the blood so that adds to total body buffering capacity and you've both got the internal and the external buffers being improved and you may get um, a combined outcome which is beneficial. There is a bit of a warning that comes here. Sodium bicarbonate buffers acid buildup and might improve tolerance to heat due to plasma expansion but if you do decide to try it practice beforehand as the gastric side effects can be explosive. As just heard, if sodium bicarbonate buffers acid in the plasma, beta alanine does a similar job within the cells. It can help complete repeated hard efforts in training, but needs to build up in the body for three to five weeks before results are noticeable. And some writers finding the tingling side effects of the dose necessary to be effective disconcerting. The big thing when it comes to the performance of beta-alanine is that follow-up studies from the initial round of studies have shown improvements in high-intensity exercise performance. And these improvements are generally seen during all-out exercise between one and four minutes in duration. That's a very specific event in cycling. That's the pursuit or the team pursuit. If the exercise is shorter, there does not seem to be a benefit. And if the exercise is longer, the results seem a little more varied. Some studies show benefits between five and 15 minutes. Others don't. If the exercise is much longer, over an hour or so, there don't seem to be any benefits at all. And it is still kind of early days as far as getting a real-world situation. So I would say that this is going to be on the border between Cat 2 and Category 3. As far as cyclists go, is it going to help to do a one- to four-minute search after a couple of hours of effort already because they're only talking about all-out efforts in isolation here? Here is Dr. Trent Stellingworth talking about beta-alanine and one study that has been done. So we're starting to get some evidence for cycling here. There is one study showing that during prolonged uh, endurance cycling, Mm -hmm. at the end when you have to sprint to the finish, uh, it did help with that last, uh, you know, the last burst to the finish line. So it's mainly in situations when you get that muscle burn. So any sport that involves that. The next supplement, creatine, is definitely a category four supplement. This doesn't mean that you should automatically take it, though, because it helps during strength and hypertrophic phases of training. This is putting on muscle, growing muscle either on the bike or in the gym. The British track team have been using it with the Team Pursuit riders for the last 10 years. It can cause a bloated feeling though, so use a relatively low dose. The type of cycling you do, as well as your age, is important if you're going to take creatine. Just like strength training as a whole, it is not always beneficial to put on more muscle. But if you are older or in a highly explosive discipline like sprinting, then this could be worthwhile. There are also studies around that show a decrease in blood lactate, which means greater power at lactic threshold. And other studies, again, that look at its effect on cycling, such as taking creatine, can lead to a reduction in oxygen consumption during submaximal exercise. In these instances, I would say it's definitely coming back to a CAT 3, possibly even a CAT 2 for those specific instances outside of the sprinting and weight training. The next supplement is citrulline malate. It's a relative newcomer to the supplement market and it looks like it could be valuable for cyclists. It is still on the fence though. I mentioned it a couple of episodes ago and it might have stuck in your mind as the watermelon extract. 
Citrulline malate leads to a greater ATP production and anecdotally makes endurance exercises seem easier due to its ability to reduce lactic acid. There are plenty of products that contain citrulline malate as part of a formula and others that are basically pure citrulline malate products. There is not much academic literature yet, but studies have shown that promote aerobic energy production. Some of the other things that they have shown is a reduction in fatigue. The decrease in fatigue during exercise is thought to underline most of the benefits seen with training capacity or work volume. Muscle soreness, the lone study using citrulline acutely pre-workout noted a 40% reduction in muscle soreness the following two days after the workout. And training volume increase, the increase in work capacity seen with citrulline supplementation appears to be time dependent while there are no inherent or immediate effects. The reduction of fatigue seems to be able to facilitate this. These are really promising and anecdotally I have heard good things about using it. The final supplement I have here is glycine propinyl L-cartanine. I'm just going to say GPLC for short. A study called Long-Term GPLC Supplementation and Paradoxical Effects on Repeated Anaerobic Sprint Performance examined the long-term effects of different dosages of GPLC supplementation on repeated high-intensity stationary cycle sprint performance. Supplementing GPLC resulted in sprint bouts 3, 4, and 5, producing a 3 to 6% higher value of peak power. GPLC is highly dose dependent though, because the different doses used in this study resulted in a reduction in peak power of anywhere between 2 to 7%. So, in conclusion, from this study, GPLC appears to be a useful dietary supplement to enhance anaerobic work capacity and potentially sport performance, but apparently the dosage must be determined specific to the intensity and duration of exercise. So some other positive effects that are being reported, muscle damage and muscle soreness are both reliably reduced during ingestion of GPLC and pairing with exercise. Lactate production appears to be decreased in studies that note an increase in muscular cartine stores although the decrease is not overly notable. Fatigue, there's evidence to support a role in reducing exercise-induced fatigue. All right, there you have it. A list of ones that I would experiment with if you're going to go down this route and you've got everything else locked down. Here's some general advice on things to watch out for, though. There was a study done called Efficacy and Safety of Ingredients Found in Pre-Workout Supplements. It doesn't necessarily apply to all of the supplements I mentioned because if you can get one of them on their own, then that's going to be the best way to actually use them. But in some pre workout supplements, the ones with the funky names and the funky people on the labels, they're the ones that are a little suspect because they're mixing up a lot of different ingredients and a lot of those ingredients you won't really need. The study that I'm talking about found that although evidence exists to support the performance enhancement efficacy of some pre-workout ingredients as standalone agents, published data on combination products are scant, inconclusive, or conflicting. The safety of these products may be compromised if users consume larger than recommended amounts or use more than one product. So that's one part of it, that they're a little unknown, and this is exactly what happened to Ben Hill. 
But the other part of it is that you've got to be 100% sure that it's safe, legal, and there's no chance of contamination with anything that could cause you to fail a dope test. That's the other side of it, is that you don't know what's in these factories, and you need to do independent testing if you're really serious, or you need to just check the testing that they're actually doing of these substances. It's the personal responsibility of all cyclists to ensure that any supplements they take are legal and pure. If in doubt, don't take it. Ignorance isn't an excuse. You can definitely check what is legal and what is not on WADA or ASADA or USADA's websites. They will have a list there that will be clear and searchable so you can see whether the main ingredients are or in some cases if the ingredients are banned. They're not necessarily, actually I don't think at all they're going to list exact products. It is in the case where somewhere in Australia that supplements are regulated by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which is similar to the FDA in America, but the FDA in America doesn't regulate supplements in the same manner that they regulate food. Only if there is a lot of reports or there is problems with something that they will look into it, but it is a highly unregulated industry. I'm actually putting together a guide to help with dosage and products So if you visit semiprocycling.com forward slash supplements to check it out, it's not available just yet, but it will be available soon and it will be able to help you go through the dosage so you can experiment yourself with using any of these supplements. Coming up, a better way to hold your race number on, and no, it's not race dots, but they do claim that you will save 8 to 21 watts per hour and we reveal some crazy power numbers up a short sharp climb from a well-known cyclist after this word from our sponsor This week's episode is brought to you by you. Well, you, if you become a patron of the show, you will be helping the show to do great things for your performance, like share my experiment with bicarb soda for performance to see which one of Professor Louise Burke's side effects come true. Many athletes have an unfortunate side effect that they get gut problems with the bicarbonate, and that can just range from burping and and I'm feeling a little bit squeamish in the stomach, but it can go right through to vomiting and diarrhea. Got a glass of cold water here and some bicarb. I'm going to first mix this up. And now the taste test. Ooh, ooh, that's rough. Your patronage makes exploring and uncovering performance secrets possible. Plus, the competition is ending in the next couple of days where one person will win a one-off semi-pro cycling t-shirt and, best of all, a chance to win a custom three-month training plan written by me or a one-hour phone consultation just for you and your cycling. To unlock your potential and uncover performance secrets, show your support for the Semi-Pro Cycling Performance Podcast by going to semiprocycling.com forward slash support. Donate and you will be entered to win. And now, let's get to the tech, hacks, and products section. And the product this week is No Pins Self-Adhesive Speed Wallets Road Pro. That's a hell of a mouthful. 
They are calling this thing a wallet. So whatever. But this product is a wallet that attaches to your jersey or your skin suit using a highly researched adhesive. The wallet forms a flat sealed unit on your jersey or skin suit, saving and this is claimed by them, 8 to 21 watts over pinned on numbers. It's quicker to apply than pinning on the number and avoids putting pinholes in your jersey. The Road Pro Rear Speed Wallet accommodates a UCI regulation 160mm by 180mm rear number. This is a size used by pros in the Euro road racing and time trialing scene. Simply put your provided race number into the wallet, peel off the backing and stick it on. You get a pack of four for £13, including postage. But here is the good bit, the science. So... They claim that they're saving you between 8 to 21 watts. Here's what they've got to say. On average, the no-pin speed wallet saves 17 watts drag at 30 miles an hour over a carefully pinned-on number. Even the worst-case scenario showed no-pin's speed wallet saved 8 to 9 watts over a pinned-on number. This may equate to helping you be over a minute faster over 25 miles for the same effort. So what's my recommendation? My take is that that is some shitty pinning. I really can't see such a large benefit from a well-fit number, especially a UCI or similar number. It's only those old-school club ones, you know, the leather, pleather, or the cloth ones that are a huge pain in the ass. Wax paper is fine. So I say these may only be useful if you don't like pins. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Patrick Bevan, the New Zealand rider on the Advanti racing team, smashing out 6.77 watts per kilogram. It was in this year's Tour of Adelaide, he actually beat Cadell's time up the climb, better known as the Corkscrew, and he rode... 522 watts for six and a half minutes. His profile from last year says he is 77 kilos, so that is 6.77 watts per kilo over six minutes. Bam. Hat tip for Rob for sending in this detective work. That is definitely showing that the pointy end of the NRS certainly is sharp. And that's it. You've been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by you. To unlock your potential and uncover performance secrets, show your support for the Semi-Pro Cycling Performance Podcast by going to semiprocycling.com forward slash support. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into.